broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Midtown Business Radio. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW, and this week on the Midtown Business Radio Show, guest co-host Bo Wilkins came by from Sound River Advisors. If you remember, Sound River Advisors is a company that works with privately held businesses, helping them create innovative and effective compensation plans for very valuable key executives, while at the same time helping them preserve their cherished private ownership of their business. We sat down with Doug Romanoff, who founded Romanoff Renovations back in 1974, and for over 40 years, this company has been installing flooring around the Atlanta area and beyond. In fact, with their attention to detail and customer service, the company has become one of the largest contractors working with the Home Depot, installing their flooring that they sell in over 400 of their locations around the country. Here's Doug talking about how he started the company over 40 years ago when he was working as a solo installer with less than $500 in the bank and he's grown the company to over $100 million a year in sales. He also shared how important it was for him to be giving back to his community as he began to see some success with his business. Check it out. Essentially, I started this 41 years ago. I was nine. (laughs) Yeah, I get you. Yeah. I was not nine. (laughs) I was a year out of college. I was working for a flooring company company and decided in my great naivete that I could do this better myself. I looked at my checkbook, I had $300, and I said I could do this. So essentially what I did is Dalton, Georgia, which is the carpet capital of the world, is about uh, an hour north of here. I would drive up to Dalton, look for discontinued carpet, uh, seconds, whatever I could buy cheap. I get samples take them down to Atlanta, try to sell them to apartments who were looking for cheap carpet. Then uh, that would be Tuesday I would sell. On Wednesday I'd rent a truck, drive Dalton, buy what I what I sold, write a check that far exceeded the amount of money I had in my checking account, drive it to Atlanta on Thursday I'd deliver carpet and beg for my money so I would have the money to clear the checks and most times I would clear the checks, uh, sometimes not so much. Man! It was it was a tough beginning and the first several years were tough. No bank in their right mind would loan me any money. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't loan me money. And as time went on we, we did better and had a little more business. I opened up, I bought a small building. About 27 years ago, a couple guys walked into my building, said, we're from Home Depot. We're starting uh, to do flooring installs and sales. Uh, Would you like to be an installer for us? My answer uh, in my infinite wisdom was, uh, no, thank you. I didn't see the vision in that. Fortunately, about six months later, they came back and said, uh, would you like to do it? And I said, well, let's try it. And we did a little of their installs out of one of their stores. Uh, Some years later, they came to me and said, we're opening up Home Depots in Virginia. Would you like to be our installers there? I said, I better talk this over with my wife. I went home. She said, are you crazy? (laughs) We're finally making enough money to pay our bills. Don't rock the boat. I said, yeah, you're right. The Home Depot guys came the next day. They said, uh, so what did your wife say? I said, said, absolutely no way we should do this. And I said... uh, they said, so you're not going to do it? I said, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh, boy. And I kept thinking, how am I going home tonight? <laughs> but you did, and you're still alive. But I did, and I survived it. And yeah. uh, shortly after, we opened up a third location in Savannah and con- continued to grow the business to new locations. Uh, three years ago, I bought a local bath renovation company, and we extended our services to total bath. Uh, renovations and uh, 
here we are today. We're very passionate in our company about giving back to the communities we serve. We have a foundation, the Romanoff Foundation, and, and, and the goal of that foundation is to help people that have fallen in the cracks of society. And it is run by our organization. It's funded by our, our organization. And I realized when I started that that it would be good for the people we serve. But I didn't realize at the time how good it was for the karma of our company. People, employees of company, have to feel good about who they work with and work for. Mm -hmm. And I think most of all, I think our people generally are very proud of working for our company because our basic goal is to do the right thing. We we also sat down with Sarah Smith and Charlie Craig from Solution Road. This organization works with research institutions and other organizations who are needing to raise funds to carry on their initiatives, particularly through philanthropic means. Coming up, Sarah talks about her abilities in forming relationships very quickly to the benefit of the clients that she works with. Check it out. It's all about relationships and it's all about don't waste people's time, be effective and understand what you're going to do before you do it so you can be as streamlined as possible. First you do your research on the person. You want to know who you should send information to. Sometimes you're sending stuff to complete strangers, but you have to understand what the company's core values are. Just like Doug said, if we were going to go talk to him about his foundation is at his company. Y'all are going to get a call. <laughs> if we were going to do that, I would I would do a lot of homework on what he did. Then I would also look at things that he, he might not be doing with his company. He might have a hobby. You know, he might be a fly fisherman, might want to do something else because it's about making the other person understand that they are really important to you. Stick around. We got the full interview coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Midtown Business Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day again today. We really appreciate everybody who stops by to check out the business experts that we bring to you every week. I'm joined in studio by a friend of mine who has stopped by the studio once or twice, Bo Wilkins from Sound River Advisors, joining me in the studio today. Good to see you, CW. And for uh, the folks who haven't had a chance to get to know you and hear about Sound River Advisors, we'll have to come back and talk a little bit about what the company does. I'm also joined in the studio by Doug Romanoff of Romanoff Renovation. He was introduced to me by uh, Michael Golden from Arnold Golden Gregory, who joined us in the studio not too long ago and shared some good things about you and said you were a cool guy and had a heck of a business going. So thanks for taking time to uh, come by and tell us about what you're doing there. You're welcome. He, he lies, right? Yeah, he does. Well, he's an attorney, right? Oh, stop. <laughs> oh, he knows I'm kidding. And that lady that you heard there is Sarah Smith from Solution Road. They're an organization that helps businesses in the area find access to funding that they may need to grow. So we'll be exactly. wanting to introduce you to plenty of people, as we were talking about Every, before the show went everybody live. Everybody needs money. And you brought a guest with you. I did. I brought my associate, Mr. Charles Craig, who is quite an accomplished gentleman. He's a... Are you, you finished your second book? Is that right? Uh, working on it. Working on his second novel. And yeah. that's Charlie Craig. Yes, Charlie Craig. Now, now, Charlie, you're writing a book. What's the book about? I wrote a novel. It's about bioethics and clinical ethics. And now I'm writing a book. Uh, it's a crime drama based on my time as a reporter in Boston. I thought you were going to say based on my time as a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little of both. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bo, introduce us to Sound River Advisors, because uh, I know you've been on uh, a while back, but uh, maybe somebody listening today hasn't heard about the company, so share a little bit of information about what you all do over there. 
Yeah, so we're a financial services firm, and we work with wealthy families doing wealth transfer, estate planning, as well as business owners doing business succession exit strategy planning. And uh, underneath all that planning are life insurance products that are used on the estate tax wealth transfer side. Um, those are also used, uh, have we've talked about before, within a business on the executive benefit side, funding deferred compensation programs, phantom stock plans, plans that are there to retain, reward the key people of a company, which typically are a huge component of revenue drivers, which is a huge component of value creation, which is a big deal for business owners right now as it relates to exiting, creating value. So we do a lot of that kind of work um, with business owners. Now, do you help on that front when a, when a business is privately held? Do you help along the way with regards to planning what the exit will be, whether it's transitioning it to family down the road or um, or selling? Uh, do you get involved with that or do you Absolutely. kind of tailor it? Oh, so you do. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, typically, it will, it will be our firm and somebody like Michael Golden uh, sort of co-leading the way as, as outside advisors to the business owner, owners driving that. So we will um, typically, yeah, be spearheading that relative to, you know, looking at everything from a Michael Golden, looking at the operating documents to make sure that from a buy and sell perspective that everything's buttoned up. Valuation, a lot of companies don't even know what they're worth. Um, and then looking at the key revenue drivers uh, of a business. So we, we get underneath the hood what we don't do, for example, like valuation, we, we're not a valuation firm. We bring in people, for example, to do the valuation. So we bring in experts to fill the gaps as we put together that sort of exit strategy plan. From what I understand, when it comes to having a privately held business, you kind of have to start thinking about it well in advance of the time that it comes to, to transition it. Because I guess how you have it structured and, and that kind of thing can play into how how it goes on the end. Oh yeah. I mean I tell every business owner they they should whether they never plan to sell and they're going to transition it to the next generation generations, they need to always be sale ready. You know, it's kind of like always come in like you're playing the Super Bowl that day. You know, it makes no sense to be operating by the seat of your pants. So you should always be operating with that sort of mindset. Are there some key areas that somebody can focus on that will help them be in that place that you're talking about where they're, where they're Super Bowl ready right now? You know, it, it, for, for every company's different. I would say management team is huge. You know, a lot of people, th different privately held business owners think that they sometimes run the show and that profitability is due to them solely. And a lot of times there's three or four or five people that are key to them that are actually more important than that person. Um, I would say concentration of revenue within a few number of customers isn't so good. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't realize that, and they sort of go, ah, oh, you know, 60% of our business is from X company, but they've always done business with us. So we really don't worry about that. And that's something that we kind of go, well, you might want to think about that, and let's talk about that. I guess those types of things would, particularly when it comes to selling the business, would be a big thing because that's how the buyer is going to look at it is what if that particular key account or three or four key accounts go away. Right. How's that going to impact the business? And, they, and that was the other thing I heard recently is it relates to the structure of the business is you want to have more than one key person 
driving sales, for example, because what if that person goes away? Or what if the what if the owner is the key person, and then we're buying it? <laughs> and, and I would say, and I would say they're not sale ready. I mean, yeah. you don't want a business, you don't want revenue dependent on that owner. You want the owner, the the revenue, the owner to be able to be just independent of the company. The owner to be able to walk away, and the company is completely unaffected. Private equity groups, that's what they're looking for. And are there some strategies for doing that? I mean, I guess it's just hiring or being in a position to be able to add some of those revenue drivers that you're talking those about. Pe- yeah, those people to replace what you were once doing as an owner wearing multiple hats. Now I've got three or four people that fill all those gaps and, in fact, better than I was at it. How often do you find businesses that have, that are in that place? They've got a good business going. Maybe they've got a diverse c- customer base, but it's still really Mr. Owner that's, that's the main person. Do you kind of help them work through that and maybe advise them, hey, we need to bring some people in, get some successor planning or get some people in who can do what you do so that you more can t- step yeah. away? Yeah, and it's more times than not that, that it's um, the business owner is trying to micromanage the company and and so yeah it's it's you know 20 percent of the time do i find somebody that's actually doing it right and the good news is is the way things are going now economically people are getting away with it Mm -hmm. 08 you didn't get away with it so are there some key areas of you know where are the big missteps happening outside of you know i've got one or two clients that are really driving my business and maybe having me as the owner or one person or or you know just a very small number of people actually driving the business are there other areas that you find that people need to be aware of that mistakes are made as as it relates to being able to effectively transition a business you know i, I think as it relates to transitioning i think um it goes back to that key management team. I mean, there's got to be a group that can take this business, whether it's whether I'm going to transition it even to my son and daughter or whatever, or I'm going to sell it to a strategic or to a private equity group. You know, the key is, is that the biggest key and the biggest misstep I see is that key management team, because you have to have the ability to walk away, somebody come back, come in and feel comfortable that the business is going to continue and that the customers aren't going to leave. I would imagine that if I'm going to transition the business over to my, my kids, for example, or family, keep it in the family, that in and of itself, it can be dicey from the perspective of they may not have the acumen that the, that the business owner has brought to the company along the way. I guess they need to have potentially been involved with the business on some level and probably showing the fact that they've been able to be effective in that. <laughs> You've got this big business that's been doing great for all these years and I want to keep it going and keep it in the family. Uh, oh, by the way, you know, my son Billy's not necessarily been a part of the business a whole, whole lot along the way. It may not be the best leader to give it to at that point, I guess. They need to be thinking about things like that. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes that means that Billy might have, you know, ownership in the company, but he has no voting control, possibly. And he may not even be in the business. If, if Billy's going to be working in the business, you know, obviously he's had to have proven along the way and gone that he can that he can run the business. Or sometimes there's kids that are in the business that don't run the business. They're just they work for a non-family CEO, mm-hmm. which is fine, too. That's just all communication which in a family business is the that's you know that's the big problem is that families run into with family held businesses is communicating what dad wants what son wants etc it's there's a lot of dynamics there that a lot of high-paid consultants coming in to try to figure all that out for families and get them talking 
talking with Bo Wilkins, one of the counselors and advisors over at Sound River Advisors. We're talking about how their organization is able to partner with privately held companies to help them you know, develop a compensation package that's effective to keep those key employees that are helping driving that business forward, as well as helping them position their their business structure so that they can have a hopefully seamless sale of the business at the end, if that's what the ultimate goal is, or uh, to be able to effectively transition it over to uh, family, if that's what the ultimate plan is at the end uh, of the of the road there. So, do you have maybe an example or two of situations that you've been able to, you know, work with an organization and maybe do something creative to keep that key employee or a set of key leaders or maybe uh, help someone through a, a transition that uh, that they were really kind of anxious about that it turned out to be great? Yeah. In fact, I had a meeting today with a client who we've been working through this and, um, you know, we talked about strategic acquisition from somebody in his business coming in to buy him. We talked about private equity and um, and the good news for him is he's got a pretty good management team underneath him. And he really is like, you know, I really would like that management team to own and run this company, not a private equity group, um, not a strategic. And and so I said, well, have you ever thought about a, an ESOP? And mm-hmm. so that's the, you know, the employee stock ownership plan. Right. Anyway. One of the one of the companies I was with actually set that up, and it turned out to be a great thing. It was a really nice situation for the employees, and and uh, continued to pay out for a good good period of time, even after you left. That's exactly right, and it's a and it is there's some inherent tax advantages to the owner to, to the seller, and I won't belabor all the points the the detail points at this time, but it ended up that was a good case in point of how we talked through. There's different ways to monetize this business, Mr. Business Owner, but what are you really trying to do here? Like, because it's money is one thing to, uh, the value creation monetarily is one thing, but also the value creation for for him was for those people that work for him that he cares about and the impact of this business on the community moving forward that he didn't want sold off later down the road by a private equity group that took him, you know, that bought it and then three years later flipped it. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine that... You know, there's got to be a lot of people out there that maybe they don't even realize that there's folks out there like you that can can help them. I mean, how often how often do you find somebody that they don't really know yet what what the end game is? I mean, where you meet somebody, you start to talk. Oh, you have a privately held business. What's your you know is your plan to ultimately sell it someday? I mean, how many people don't really know what they want to do with it? A lot. <laughs> Most. Most say they, you know, they talk about EBITDA and turns on their multiples and all this. They hear stuff at cocktail parties from their other business owner buddies. It's kind of funny. <laughs> they get the lingo right, you know, and they're kind of like, you know, all this. And you start drilling down like, well, how did you come up with that multiple? And what does EBITDA mean? Do you really know what that is? And um, and and how do you really, what do you really want to do? When you really start drilling down, they're, they yeah, they want to... Um, they want to get some kind of value out of the business, but it's very different than usually than what they're thinking, if that makes sense, because they really haven't taken the time to get really educated because they're too busy running the company. What's the picture of the company look like that would make sense to partner with someone that does what you all do there at Sound River Advisors? For us, you know, the companies we work with are 
um, small to, to middle market and the, the way we define that because you again you cocktail party talk that how many times you heard somebody say they work in small to middle market but for us <laughs> you know it's somebody doing typically you know it's a 30 40 50 million dollar revenue up to 100 million could it be more sure because the dynamics are the same just bigger numbers um, but that's pretty typical because the fact is, I mean, how many people do you know that have a company that does more than a hundred million of revenue anyway? And they still own it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, again, it's, it's, it seems yeah. like once you get to that point, it might be, might be a good idea to, uh, to find a good buyer so that you can ensure your, ensure <laughs> your end. Yeah. I mean, most these days, yeah, I've already been, you know, private equity groups already come in and purchased a piece of it or whatever. So that's kind of the, I'd say, $5 million to $100 million of revenue. Do you help with the process of trying to identify what the buyer landscape is? I mean, trying to identify prospective buyers out there in the world, or do you kind of leave that to those other entities out there? Leave that to the investment bankers. So, you know, that's, again, we we bring in somebody that, that actually is in that business. Well, um, I want to make sure we give everybody plenty of time to, to tell their story. Doug, uh, I, I got introduced to you, as I mentioned, by Michael right. Golden, a uh, great guy um, over at Arnold Golden Gregory, the law firm. We had him on not too long ago talking about logistics, actually. I mean, you probably deal with some logistics based on uh, what I know about your particular business. But share with the listeners what you do there at the Romanoff Renovation. Well, we're a service company. We're just installers. We have 48 locations, warehouse distribution centers around the country. As far as Seattle to Fort Lauderdale. And uh, we install primarily floors. And three years ago, I acquired a bath installation company. We do about 4,000 installations a week. Uh, so <laughs> so we stay pretty big. I used to have hair. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, we're about a $100 million a year company. Our primary client is the Home Depot. We do work for them for a little, for about 400 stores. Bo's words resonated heavily with me because we are highly concentrated on work with them, but they've been a terrific partner for us. So that's our current state. We have about 2,000 installers that work for us, some as employees, some as subcontractors. Are you pretty penetrated in the Atlanta area? Uh, well, we, we have a couple locations in greater Atlanta, but we are in around 24 states, I believe, currently. Uh, we're heavily concentrated out west, California, Oregon, Idaho, state of Washington, and in the southeast all the way from Virginia all the way to Florida, uh, west to the Mississippi. Those are our primary areas where we do business. Tell me about its genesis. I mean, how did it come yeah, to be? Essentially, I started this 41 years ago. I was nine. <laughs> yeah, I get you. Yeah. <laughs> I was not nine. <laughs> I was a year out of college. I was working for a flooring company and decided in my great naivete that I could do this better myself. I looked at my checkbook. I had $300 and I said I could do this. So essentially what I did is Dalton, Georgia, which is the carpet capital of the world, is about an hour north of here. I would drive up to Dalton, look for discontinued carpet, uh, seconds, whatever I could buy cheap. I get samples take them down to Atlanta, try to sell them to apartments who were looking for cheap carpet. Then uh, that would be Tuesday I would sell. On Wednesday, I'd rent a truck, drive Dalton, buy what I what I sold, write a check that 
far exceeded the amount of money I had in my checking account. Drive it to Atlanta on Thursday, I'd deliver carpet and beg for my money. So I would have the money to clear the checks, and most times I would clear the checks. Uh, sometimes not so much. Man. It was, it was a tough beginning, and the first several years were tough. No bank in their right mind would loan me any money. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't loan me money. And as time went on, we, we did better and add a little more business. I opened up. I bought a small building. About 27 years ago, a couple guys walked into my building, said, we're from Home Depot. We're starting uh, to do flooring installs and sales. Uh, would you like to be an installer for us? My answer uh, in my infinite wisdom was, uh, no, thank you. I didn't see the vision in that. Fortunately, about six months later, they came back and said, uh, would you like to do it? And I said, well, let's try it. And we did a little of their installs out of one of their stores. Uh, some years later, they came to me and said, we're opening up Home Depots in Virginia. Would you like to be our installers there? I said, I better talk this over with my wife. I went home. She said, are you crazy? <laughs> we're finally making enough money to pay our bills. Don't rock the boat. I said, yeah, you're right. The Home Depot guys came the next day. And they said, uh, so what did your wife say? I said, <laughs> said, absolutely no way we should do this. And I said, uh, so they said, so you're not going to do it? I said, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh, boy. And I kept thinking, how am I going home tonight? <laughs> but you did, and you're still alive. But I did, and I survived it. And yeah. uh, shortly after, we opened up a third location in Savannah and con- continued to grow the business to new locations. Uh Three years ago, I bought a local bath renovation company, and we extended our services to total bath uh, renovations, and uh, here we are today. I'm not familiar with the space very well, so groups like Home Depot, they send people into the community then, I guess, to try to find contractors that would help them be able to deliver on their installation services? Is that how that came to be? Uh, They do. They used to look for small companies, uh, a guy running a truck, and they learned that they couldn't, kind of like the Big Mac, if you want to make a Big Mac that looks and tastes the same throughout the the country, you've got to sort of have some consolidation. So they primarily use large companies now that service large swaths of the United States. So I guess they just kept coming back to you then. You were doing a good job, and they just kept saying, can you do it here, can you do it here? They did. Uh, We've been their service provider of the year for three years running, so they they think we do a pretty good job. (laughs) (laughs) And listen, we have our share of challenges. Business is tough. Customers are demanding. But I think uh, generally I'm really proud of the work we do. Well, would, what would you say is some of the core reasons why? I mean, is it attention to detail? What, what is it, do you think, that really kind of drove that? Uh, obviously, going from, you know, having $300 in the bank and you're, 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 you're writing a check that's really only worth its paper right now until you get paid on Thursday mm-hmm. to now being a $100 million business, you did something right along the way. So what would you say are the core things from a cultural perspective for you that, you know, ended up, touching your customer and impressing them to, to such an extent? Well, God, there's so many things. There's no magic wand to say if you do this, you'll be successful, and if you don't do this, you'll be a failure. I think uh, entrepreneurs generally have to be risk takers to some degree. You can't be afraid to fail. And certainly we've made our share of errors and mistakes and failures along the way, 
It costs me money, but that can't deter us from continuing to try new things. Uh, we're all about innovation. I, I, uh, our IT team comes to us and says, we've got this great thing we built, and my response typically is, that's great and that's cool. Uh, is it going to enhance the experience of our customer? And what can we do next to make it better? Because you can never, ever settle for who you are and what you do. So I think one of the things is innovation. We're always looking, where's the next step? What's the next thing we can do? Because I got to tell you, our competitors are running as fast as they can to catch us. And if we stay in the same place, we'll get caught past. And it doesn't matter what we did yesterday. It's what we do tomorrow. And and I recognize that even though we have a great relationship with Home Depot, it once again, it doesn't matter what we've done. It's how are we going to enhance the experience for the customer. Mm-hmm. So do you, uh, obviously you face the general public, I would assume. You don't just serve Home Depot. I mean, how do people link up with you and, and uh, get you on board to... Do they come to you for the products themselves, or do they come to you mainly for this, the installation services? Now, Home Depot sells the, the whole package. They sell the labor and the material on all these projects. Um, the material gets shipped to one of our 48 facilities. We contact the customer, tell them uh, we're Romanoff Renovations, we're partners with Home Depot, uh, we're ready to install your floor, your carpet has arrived, and then we communicate with customers. and. We have a lot of different ways we communicate with customers. We're open seven days a week uh, to communicate with customers. Uh, we do it by email, by you name it. We find out how customers want to be communicated with, and that's how we communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Now, so for you, when you're when you're dealing with bringing people on board for for your company, I mean, are there certain things that you're Telling your hiring managers to be looking for. I mean, what are they? What are they looking out for? Because I mean, you got to be. It's got to be. Uh, I would imagine for an organization like Home Depot to be as invested w- with you as they are, you got to be doing something right as it relates to the customer service and how your people are behaving and acting when they're yeah. in the, the homes of these people. Yeah, I, I think it. The biggest and most important thing for employees to fit into our company is cultural. They have. There has to be a cultural alignment to what we believe is a company, and it has to be aligned with Home Depot's cultural value wheel. They have their culture, too, as every company does. And Some years ago, as we grew, I realized that it was going to be very difficult to communicate those values right. uh, to, we have over 500 employees of our company, in addition to our installers, is how do we get that message and I spent months trying to figure out what is the core value of our company? Mm-hmm. What do we need? And uh, it boiled down to four things to me. Number one was commitment to excellence. Don't be okay at your job. Learn your craft and do it well. Uh, number two is respect for all. Uh, we are a company that is very collaborative. We work together. We have to respect differences of opinion uh, unless you've walked a mile in somebody's shoes, it's hard to understand sometimes why they think a certain way, but it's critical to be patient to understand that. Number three is listening. Um, w- we, as humans, don't listen very well. Uh, glad to see you're listening to me now. Um, and uh, if we don't listen, we can't identify the problem. And if you can't identify the problem, 
can't solve the problem. So that's a core value of ours. And, and the fourth thing is giving back. We're very passionate in our company about giving back to the communities we serve. We have a foundation, the Romanoff Foundation, and, and, and the goal of that foundation is to help people that have fallen in the cracks of society. And it is run by our organization. It's funded by our, our organization. And I realized when I started that that it would be good for the people we serve, but I didn't realize at the time how good it was for the karma of our company. People, employees of company, have to feel good about who they work with and work for. Mm -hmm. And I think most of all, I think our people generally are very proud of working for our company because our basic goal is to do the right thing. I tell all of our employees, and if I'm taking too no, much time, We're doing stop good. me. Uh, I say, um, I always look to meet every new employee one-on-one -on -one who comes to Atlanta, our office, to train. And I'll spend about 30 minutes with them, and I, mostly about cultural stuff. And what I say to them is, I want you, at the end of the day, when you go home and you're getting ready to bed, for bed, and you're getting ready to brush your teeth, and I hope you brush your teeth, I'm looking in the mirror. I want you to ask yourself a question. Am I proud of what I did today? And if your answer is yes, you're probably going to be good for our company. And if your answer is no, think about how tomorrow can be different. What can you do to touch people's lives in a positive way? And if we are a group of people with those common core values, as much as our company will change, and it does all the time, those values stay strong. And I think it makes us a good company. So with it, with your employees, the people that make up your company, how do you help them to give back? Do you know what I'm saying? Do you do, you do things in the community that are, um, hey, we're going to be out doing XYZ activity, event, whatever the case may be, to, that they can then come and, and contribute some time and energy to? How, how do you facilitate the giving right. back piece among your employees? There's a lot of aspects to giving back. Um, we give every employee a day of service, a paid day off to go out into their community and find somebody or some organization to help. And then we encourage them to post a blog on our our internal website on, on the first page so they can share that experience what it meant to them what it meant to the community and we want to infect them with the idea of doing things well for our company we also when our foundation does things we always tell the story we post pictures uh, and people can respond to that which they do and and we try to encourage people to be excited about it not not everybody gives back every day, sure. uh, but but I would say as a group, uh, we're pretty good at that. And it's partly who we hire, too. We want to try to identify people that have a, a belief that giving back is a good thing. What does the Romanoff Foundation focus on? Well, as I said, it, it focuses on helping people that have fallen in the cracks of society. We helped somebody not too long ago who was living in a tent by the railroad tracks, had no place to live. We got him a place to live, and it, it really turned around his life. Uh, we discovered there are a lot of college students living in their car that are homeless. Didn't know that, but we discovered somebody at uh, Kennesaw College up the street that was living in their car. Uh, we got him a dorm. They lived in a dorm, and it really did change his life. So we look for those kind of things to help people, uh, and some of these are really tear-jerking stories, um, but... Um, uh, they're all valuable to the people.
people. And once again, we feel good about doing that. So are the folks that you're helping largely brought to you or, or brought to your attention by people who work with you, I guess? Yeah, oftentimes it is because we want to make sure they're vetted. This is yeah. somebody out of some place <laughs> who says, Hey, you I know, need your they, help. <laughs> I need a new limb. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we deal with so many customers every day, thousands a week. We, uh, we, we really don't have too much difficulty finding people in need. There's a lot of people in tough shape there. I yeah. just heard today on the news that 21% of children um, are, um, don't have enough to eat in this, in this country. It's extraordinary. We've been talking with the founder of Romanoff Renovation. Doug Romanoff has been sharing some information to us about how he got his start. It was pretty amazing. He just bootstrapped his company from basically nothing. He's built it up to a, a very large company employing several thousand people, and they're one of the largest providers of contracting services to the Home Depot, installing flooring for that organization across a number of their locations. You mentioned the fact that you recently acquired a bathroom uh, renovation uh, company. What's Where are you going? Where are What's in the future for Romanoff Renovation? You know, um, it was interesting, Bo. You talked about having clarity on, on, on the future direction of your company. And I had told you I sit with new employees all the time. And I was sitting with an employee, a uh, new employee I had just met. And he said, what's your end game? Uh, and I had a very honest answer. I said, I don't have one. And, um, I, you know, I, I said, running a business is like driving a car. You've got to have your eyes right ahead of you to, to, to watch out for the potholes mm -hmm. and to be aware of opportunities that exist. Occasionally, you have to look way down the road to make sure you go in the direction uh, that gets you to your destination. And then sometimes you have to look in the rearview mirror so you know where you've been. It's very important to know where you've been to help you understand where you go. So... Um, I think our, we'll continue to try things, we'll change things, the industry will continue to change, uh, but in terms of goals, being a $200 million company or having 100 locations, I care less about that than just finding ways to be better at what we do. And, and I've always felt that money and growth is really a derivative of doing, doing a good job. With your investment in in terms of the level of commitment that you have with your service to the Home Depot, um, is there room out there for you to do similar partnership relationships with other organizations that may not be the Home Depot? Uh, there is, but we've grown so rapidly. We're growing at 30% a year. Uh, one of the big reasons I think companies fail is they grow faster than their abilities to perform. So we're trying to find that sort of safeguard not to grow too fast, and our opportunities have been uh, very rich with them. So at some time, if we start to stabilize, we'll look in other directions. We've worked with some other large companies in the past successfully, and we may do it again. Once again, it's driving down the road and see what opportunities uh, <laughs> We come across. That's right. Well, we'll come back to you, and we'll we'll talk about how folks can get in touch with with your company. And not long ago, I was uh, reached out to by Sarah. No, you you called me. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and I'm I'm glad you did actually um, because as we were talking before we went on the air today, uh, one of the shows that I do, Health Connect South Radio, is about helping bring to light the healthcare assets that we have here in the in the Atlanta area and beyond. Uh, many of them are startup companies that are trying to get going. And as we got to talking about what you do with Solution Road, it sounds like there's a need for what you do with many of these companies, and that is helping them raise funds right. to do their thing. Right. Uh, we start. I started Solution Road a, almost a year ago, about a year ago. You know, we're still very, very new. And I have two associates, one whom is here with me, Charles Craig. We found our first client just by talking to each other about things in the community. We started talking about how we'd been reading that numbers of students with AIDS on campuses were just skyrocketing and that this was not being addressed by anyone in the media. It's not really talked about much anymore. When no. I was in high school, that was when it was couldn't turn around without yeah. talking about HIV. Yeah. That was when it was really blowing up right. in the media and into everybody's consciousness. But it, it seemed it, like it kind of faded out. It like went away really quickly. And Charlie's heard me say this a million times, but I'll say it one more time. I have a theory that in the late 90s, when Emory University came out with their antiviral pill and made that huge milestone for people, there was a collective sigh of relief in that AIDS community. And it was like, oh, finally made some progress. And then you turned around two years later and 9-11 happened. In media, you know that people have ADD and yeah. the American psyche went from AIDS and the tech bubble, right, and the internet to war, global issues, and patriotism. We had to do that at that time. But what got lost was, and I'm sure it's not just, you know, just not AIDS. I'm sure other things did too. But one of the things that's happening right now is that this virus is spreading more and more quickly among this demographic of students that are 13 to 24. So Charlie and I were talking, and, and he said, oh, I, I know a guy. You know, I know a guy who fixes cars. I know a guy who you know, can fix your air conditioner, come out on the weekend. But he's like, I know a guy who makes vaccines. So I was like, all right, Charlie, let's, let's try, try to do some work together. And we met the CEO at the OK Cafe before it burned down. Yeah. Of course, we had nothing yeah. to do with that. <laughs> and, um, you know, after about four months of talking and picking out some strategic planning ideas and doing presentations and just meeting and meeting and meeting and meeting with them, we got a handshake and we got a contract. People are amazed when... We talk about how we're raising money for an AIDS vaccine. And, you know, this is our first, this is our first customer out of the gate. It's not like we're raising money for shoes or we're raising money. <laughs> okay. We're raising money for a company that is creating a vaccine specifically for the United States. I didn't know this, but, um, Dr. Robert McNally was very, very, very helpful and taught me a lot. And uh, I found out there are so many AIDS viruses. They're all different all over the world. Um, and I'm an entrepreneur. I come from media and education fundraising. And now I'm doing healthcare fundraising. Um, so if you talk about fundraising, 
and how to be good at it. You have to believe in what you do. You have to find the right people to talk to. And you have to be utterly tenacious. You have to be a great researcher. And you have to communicate well. Um, and you cannot be afraid to talk about money. So I'm sitting with these other gentlemen here who talk about money all the time. And you know there are so many people who won't talk about money, right? And even with the family businesses that you were talking about earlier, that um, that is a common occurrence, you know. Uh, but I'll tell you how I got into fundraising. Yeah. Um, I started working in television and um, worked at WPVI in Philly. Really, really great ABC-owned affiliate. And that newsroom was crazy. Just constantly, it was a moving animal. And uh, if you couldn't talk to people, if you couldn't make them feel comfortable, if you couldn't find out things about them, if you couldn't talk on the phone and make a fantastic cold call, you were not going to be a good news person. There's no way. Um, when I was working at Emory, I made a phone call to the chief marketing officer at Cox Communications. His name is John Williams. I don't think he's there anymore. But um, I cold called him, and he agreed to a meeting. And I went over there the next week, and I got out of the elevator, and he was standing right there. And he was looking at me. He said, I had to see you as soon as you came out of the elevator. Why? Why? I've never had such a good cold call in my life. So um, talking to people and having fun with it, but also taking them really seriously. And you, Bo, talked about creating value, right? Um, that's, another, that's another piece of this fundraising that you, you have to do. Um, if... If Bo's talking to a family and they say, listen, um, we have MS in our family and we want our money to go into this kind of research, he has to be sensitive. He has to know what, um, what groups to look at. And I bet you any money before he meets with those people to talk to them about things like that, he already knows what they're going to want to talk about. Right. Um it's a responsibility to be informed. And for me, I can just say that um, adding value is always the key to a successful fundraising venture or a, um, a relationship, a friendship, a marriage, anything like that. And you have to have fun with it. That was one of the reasons I wanted to go out on my own. Um, I don't, Char Charlie was talking about non-traditional fundraising a little bit earlier, but um, uh, I am a creative, imaginative person, and I think big. When I was working at Emory, I worked for the Gazueta Business School, and one of the faculty came and goes, oh, God, we don't have a, we don't have a relationship with the New York Stock Exchange. And I was like, do you want one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course we want one. Okay. 
So I took that as a call to action. So you cold called the New York Stock Exchange. I cold called the president of the New York Stock Exchange, <laughs> Bill Johnston, who worked for Dick Grasso at the time. I love it. And Derek Schiller, who was working at the Braves, had sent me 500 bobblehead dolls of a discontinued player. I can't remember his name. <laughs> and I sent boxes and boxes of these to my hotel in New York. And everywhere I went, I would be like, hi, I'm Sarah I'm from Emory, and here's your bobblehead doll of your discontinued player. And we would, well, come on in and have a good time. Let's talk. So I think I gave the president of the stock exchange four bobblehead dolls. <laughs> <laughs> one for each grandkid, right? <laughs> but um, well, as we were as we were wrapping up our time, I was like, "Oh, can we go down on the floor?" And he was like, Shh, "I've never been down there. I'd love to like go on the stock exchange floor." So he took me down, and you know, he was the president of the stock exchange. This was before nine eleven. When he walked through, it was like the parting of the Red Seas. And he, you know, I got all dressed up and looked nice, and he had his arm in my arm, and people just went you know and it was it was fun he showed me he said see that guy over there i'm like yeah he's got a red stripe of tape on his back and i was like it said kick me no (laughs) what it meant was that he had an injury you know how those guys are running around like crazy okay that was a signal to people to like stop you know don't run into this guy his back is broken or his his neck is screwed up or whatever. But they have so many unspoken languages and signs and directions on that floor that you would never know unless you just got a great tutorial. But again, back to fundraising. And, and <laughs> <laughs> well, the stock exchange is about fundraising. Well, it's about money. Um, we ended up with a great relationship with the stock exchange and we had an alumni, uh, an alumni party on the floor. So now you've got a relationship em- with Goisweta and the yep. stock exchange. Yeah. Emory Goisweta Business School has been doing that for almost 15 years now. So. Well, a solution road is so new that we're, right. you know, we're just getting started. And I, I, I got to tell you that listening to Bo and Doug here today has been <clears throat> just really remarkable. I feel like I'm at the Harvard Business School learning how to do. I've been sitting over here taking notes. That's I mean, what it's like for me. I mean, <laughs> week in and week out, I'm, I'm getting a minor MBA here, but I just don't get any credit for it. I mean, it's amazing. And, uh, and Doug, I, you know, I just really, uh, congratulate you on the, uh, stance you've taken with your company. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's almost rare, uh, uh, these days. Uh, so really congratulations. But, and one of the things that uh, we, that Sarah and I have talked about, and Teresa uh, Roth, who is our, yes, is the third, uh, is, is the third leg of, uh, uh, of, uh, the stool here at the Solution Road, is that, uh, we're, we want to get involved in things that we really feel passionate about and things that we want to do. Right. So it's just not like we're going to take all comers, uh, that, that, uh, that, uh, knock on our door. <clears throat> and that kind of gets us back to this, uh, AIDS vaccine, because this is something that, Sarah was really passionate about, and it's something that I that I know about. I mean, part of part of my uh, background is working with the biotech, pharmaceutical, and medical device industry. So, um, and I know this company, Geovax, and it's really a remarkable story in that here they have a uh, they have the most advanced uh, AIDS vaccine in clinical development in the U.S. So they're they've gone through all the they've been through all the safety testing and now they're ready for their efficacy trial right. and this is you know this 
this is amazing because, of course, you know, the AIDS epidemic dates to, what, 1981 or 1982 when they finally discovered what HIV and AIDS were doing to people, and, and there is no vaccine. Uh, and so there have only been six uh, efficacy trials uh, throughout this, the last 30 years, and all of them have failed. Now, one of them did show some modest level of protection. So here we have a company with technology out of Emory. They're headquartered right now in Smyrna. Yeah, and they have, a, they have an AIDS vaccine that's ready to go into efficacy testing. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to help them with non-traditional fundraising. So, what does that mean? So that means if, if you're a biotech company, your traditional routes are going to the venture capitalists. And if you go public, then you're in the public equity markets. So your traditional routes are through either Silicon Valley, the first step, or and then after that, you're on Wall Street. So you're going to investment bankers. So what we're trying to do now is go to foundations, uh, whether they're pa uh, patient advocacy foundations or maybe uh, disease-related foundations or just philanthropic foundations, because more and more those groups are funding new drug development. Uh, so... Drug development is so complicated now that uh, and it requires so much money uh, that th that there are new now new sources of funding. So that's what we're trying to do with with Geovax. They haven't gone that route before, and uh, we just think that uh, that this is something that uh, is is that this needs to get done. Here yeah. you have a company that has an AIDS vaccine in in uh, ready for its clinical tri uh, efficacy trials. It can have results in four years. So. That's huge. And they're also actively developing a vaccination for Ebola. Exactly right. Yes, they're, they're using their uh, technology platform for vaccines uh, to also develop a Ebola vaccine. So, I mean, these are, uh, you know, two huge diseases that affect the entire world. It's pretty interesting because they're able to take non-pathogenic organisms or ones that aren't deadly anyway and insert DNA from these organisms uh, the deadly organisms in there and make them make the body think that this bacterium or this organism is the bad virus and then get the the immune response that we're hoping for to the virus itself without giving you the infection it's pretty crazy how they're able to use the different technology and that they are able to make what they call the vaccine like particles. molecules or particles. Particle, particles yes that uh, that they they they're like a virus but they're they're not the virus. So uh, certainly kind of cool to have had them here in the studio talking about their technology. And now I've met a company that's actually trying to help uh, generate revenue for them to actually be able to do the things you're talking about, to take it to you know, those big trials and to advance their technology and hopefully find it. How cool would it be to have had a hand in a, in a solution for that? I know, it, and it's amazing because um, this is our first project. And I'm like, oh, let's just start out small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Right? Let's start out small with a, you know, a vaccine for um for the United States. So now in your background, Sarah, you were you you mentioned that you've been doing fundraising uh, yeah. but I mean, what does that mean exactly? I mean, when you were talking you worked for a, a media outlet. Right. What kind of fundraising are you doing for for an organization like that? None actually. Um when I was working, I came down here to work at CNN and um I had a baby and it was it was hard to uh, have a baby and be gone 15 hours a day. So I went over to Emory at the Gazwetta Business School and got a job. You know, I really I knew that I didn't want to work in that education setting my entire life. So I really kept in close contact with the people that I knew at Turner. 
And then I started to branch out. And what happened was that I started, um, I was the speakers bureau for the Guzweta Business School. They, I, the professors would just come to me, can you get me somebody from the Olympics? Can you get me somebody from... So now that was the reason why they wanted to have a relationship with the New York Stock Exchange so that they could have thought yep. leaders and people come from, from yes. the stock exchange yes. to be able to educate their business people. Right. So you've been in the profession of relationship building, if you will. It your is all about, of, yeah, it's all about relationships and it's all about don't waste people's time, be effective and understand what you're going to do before you do it so you can be as streamlined as possible. Well, and fundraising is, yep. uh, you, you have to have have, uh, in order to raise funds, you just don't ask for money. Right. You have to have the infrastructure there. You have to know your story. I was going to you ask you to, about you that. Know, it's, just it. not, it's just not asking for money. And that's, right. what, uh, that's what Sarah's been doing. And you, you, have to, you have to lay the groundwork. And that requires you know, just actually knowing your business, knowing how to tell your story, raising your profile. I mean, there's so many elements to fundraising that's just not right. one thing. And people don't understand that at all. So... That's why Charlie and I are good together. But part of what you do, you end up having to contact these foundations out of the blue or yep. or mm-hmm. potential philanthropists yep. out of the blue to say, hey, this is what we're working on. I mean, what's that what's that initial interaction like? I mean what First you do your research on the person. You want to know who you should send information to. Sometimes you're sending stuff to complete strangers, but you have to understand what the company's core values are. Just like Doug said, if we were going to go talk to him about his foundation is at his company. Y'all are going to get a call. <laughs> if we were going to do that, I would, I would do a lot of homework on what he did. Then I would also look at things that he, he might not be doing with his company. He might have a hobby. You know, he might be a fly fisherman, might want to do something else because it's about making the other person understand that they are really important to you. So if you know that CW is a fly fisherman and you know (laughs) came from a background in healthcare and now I'm in radio, I mean, how do you fold that in? I would talk to you. You know, I would call you. I would talk to you. Last week I sent a cold email to the Kenneth Cole production group in New York and um, I made sure in two paragraphs, short, short email, to hit on the responsibilities that the uh, people in the office I was working for had to hit. And they matched what we're doing. It was absolutely an appropriate reach. And within 24 hours, you know, there you are waiting with your fingers crossed. And um, it's like jumping off a cliff over and over and over and over again and hoping that there's enough water down there. <laughs> so now are you actively, are, I mean, what's what's the scale for you? I mean, are you able to, if there's, because I mentioned to the to the fact that Health Connect South, we're meeting companies all the time that are looking for What's our funds. financial scale? Or what I mean, are we, how much in terms we, of your capability and beyond Geovax, for example, are you able to pick up new clients? Are you looking for new, we are. new organizations that are looking for funds? We the are. sky's the limit. Okay. Yep. Ooh. It's a big limit. How do, <laughs> with just a few minutes left, um, how do you, how, how do, does an organization, whether they're a, a philanthropic organization or foundation out there that wants to get involved with maybe the GeoVax projects, trying to fight HIV and Ebola, uh, or some of these other cool biotechnology and healthcare technology companies or whatever the, the organization is, how, how do they get involved with you? 
Well, right now, I would just ask them to find us on LinkedIn. Um, we have a kick-ass website. Ooh, can I say that? We're not monitored by website the FCC. Website developer, who, and that should be up soon. Um, they're waiting for some headshots. Um, but but let just just find you'll find us on LinkedIn really quickly, and um, we will absolutely one hundred percent return the call. What's a phone number they can call? Four zero four seven eight eight nine six five zero. Okay. There we go. So look up Sarah Smith. On LinkedIn, and that's S A R A H. Yep. Sarah Smith. Yep. On Solution, it's Solution Road, and then you'll find Charlie too. Yeah. And Teresa. Now is it E E E Y or I E? Well, no, it's actually well I E M, but but that's only conversationally. Yeah, Charles on Charles Craig on LinkedIn. It's Charles on LinkedIn. Like Prince Charles. Bo, why don't you tell folks where they can link up with Sound River Advisors? So it's soundriver.com is the website. And uh, B Wilkins at soundriver.com and 404-518-8070. And Doug, you got a website to share? I do. It's Romanoff-floors.com. And my number is 770-980-1234. And I'm Doug at Romanoff-floors.com. And uh, Romanoff is R-O-M-A-N-O-F-F. That's correct. Um, and uh, you know, if you've not done so already, link in with the Midtown Business Radio Show at Midtown BRX on both Facebook and Twitter. And uh, make sure, if you've not done so already, that you go to the right-hand side of the uh, Midtown Business Radio Show page at midtown.businessradiox.com or to the upper left-hand corner on the iTunes logo and subscribe to our show because every week we're going to be bringing you these business leaders week in and week out. Um, as Charlie was talking about earlier, you never know what you're going to learn here. And the, the people that you're going to meet, it might just be the next solution that takes your business to the next level or um, might spur a thought that could help you and your business. So make sure you subscribe to us so you can check us out every week and share it with your network because uh, you may end up helping somebody that you care about. We always appreciate everybody that's taken time to join us here in the studio. So Doug, Bo, and Sarah, and Charlie, I really appreciate you all making time to join us here in the studio on the Midtown Business Radio Show. And for everybody who took the time to uh, sign on and check us out or to download the podcast and, and check out the show today, we really appreciate you very much. We'll see you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. Woo-hoo.